Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A bevy of banking news this week. A bevy? Yeah. We've got the change in leadership at Wells Fargo, of course, announced yesterday. Deutsche Bank's drama, the wrangling uh, over its legal situation with the Department of Justice continuing. And then, of course, earnings out this morning, Tom, from three of the, the big banks, including Wells. We'll hear from Citigroup coming up. But J.P. Morgan releasing its quarterly report just minutes yeah, ago, the yeah. biggest U.S. bank. Yeah, with a, with a, well, let me get that stock up here right now. We had it before, a little bit of a lift. But uh, Christine Harper, quite impressed. I was blown away by the 13% ROE, return on inequity. We'll have some chat on that here uh, with Mr. Hintz. Brad Hintz is at New York University. Of course, years covering the banking and financial industry uh, with Sanford Bernstein. Professor Hintz, good morning. Hi, how are you doing? Well, I think I'm good. I don't know how Jamie <laughs> Dimon's doing. We'll hear on a acclaimed press conference and uh, analyst calls uh, as well. How badly does Mr. Dimon and other bankers need a steeper yield curve? Well, it solves uh, it solves a couple of problems, right? It's not just steepness. If you notice, the yield curve actually moved up, so it's we, it actually went up across the entire curve. Um, but steepness will help them on their investment portfolio, right? And, you know, I have this. I've got an investment portfolio. It's rolling off. I've got yield mm-hmm. on that important thing. As it rolls off, my net interest gets squeezed if if rates are low and the yield curve is is, is low and flat. As it starts to steepen, that solves one of the net interest margin problems. Of course, as the front end moves up, that helps my that helps my pricing in terms of loans. So that also helps me. So you know the yeah. You know, the market has been fo- focusing on the poor banks, you know, with their right. net interest margins getting squeezed. This, you know, if the if the moves are the right way, you know, it'll take a lot of that pressure off them. They bring in a dollar. They bring in 35 cents in operating income, which generates 22 cents in net income. I would suggest, Professor Hintz, that borders on cartel return. <laughs> That's a... <laughs> Why are the banks so beleaguered if I'm making 22 cents on the dollar down at the bottom, bottom, bottom line? Well, it's a lot better than it uh, than, than we've seen in the in the past, and uh, and and you know the banks have been struggling to beat their cost of capital. Uh, you know the uh, you know, with with luck, you know this will be a somewhat better. Uh, time for the for them going forward if rates continue to move in their direction. You know, it's you know the the, the third quarters are always you know seasonally slower because the because the markets tend to slow down in the summertime, right? So when you sort of look on quarter to quarter comparisons, at least on the investment banking side, it's yeah. going to look look a little bit and, funny, right? And and David, I've got to compare and a contrast here. Yeah. Bank of America operating income is twenty seven, maybe twenty nine cents on the dollar, and J P Morgan is thirty five or thirty six. That's a, that's a, in in the game of finance. That's a big disparity, in terms of profitability. 
pulling back your fixed income trading at J.P. Morgan up 48% year over year, 4.3 billion dollars, about a billion more than what analysts were were expecting. Professor, put that into some broader context for us. You're going into earnings today. A lot of people saying this is what to look for. Look for the the fixed income currencies and commodities. Sure, and and you know what we saw over the summer was you know there's been you know the, we've had very good credit uh, in the credit markets, good volumes in there. We've and we've also had some positive movements in terms of credit spreads coming in. The you know Brexit um, mm. and you know caused a lot of volatility. That's going to help in the govies and the sovereign side, and also going to pick it up in foreign exchange. So you know that's going to help the the, the summer. So when you look at it, you know last summer versus this summer, the year over year, it's going to look pretty good. When you start looking at some of the banks quarter over quarter, you're not going to see the same thing, but you're going to have to recognize that, you know, summer's always slow. This was a good summer for fixed income. And, you know, that's going to be the story that we're going to hear from these guys. The other issue you're going to hear is is investment banking, right? And investment banking tends to be, you know, this this was a, we're, we're beginning to see a slowdown in investment banking. We were talking with Axel Merck, the, the co-founder, of course, of Merck Investments. We were talking about money market fund regulations that go into effect today. What, what effect do you think that's going to have here on, on banks like J.P. Morgan? Um, n- not uh, not everyone significant. Ha- everyone has seen that coming. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've seen an adjustment in terms of issuance of commercial paper. and That's actually affecting a lot in terms of the treasurers who, who do financing. The banks are going to have, have, have adjusted to that. And so you're going to see, you know, where you do your financing, the tenor that you do for your financing. Um, it, it's, it's not a surprise. I think most of the CFOs and treasurers in America are, are sort of well aware on this one. Do the concerns about credit persist here? On previous conference calls, a, a lot of concern and consternation about uh, energy credit in, in particular. Looking at the, the report that we got today, uh, how much concern persists when it comes to, to credit and energy? Um, well, we've seen the, the, uh, uh, the, the oil prices recover. That doesn't solve uh, credit problems in terms of troubled companies. It takes a while for these things to work their way through. So it's going to be a continuum. It'll be, people will ask questions, right? They'll they'll push on it, but the uh, the the uh, the immediacy is, is yeah. now gone, right? The, the, the we 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 know there was a fire there. Uh-huh. We're watching it, right? It was when we we saw smoke that the, that the equity analysts began yes. to get get very troubled. I want to go through four mumbo-jumbo ideas. We can do that with <laughs> Professor Hintz. I'm in the back of the class running a C, and Professor, i got to get to a B-plus fast. Fortress Principles. Tangible book, $51.23, up 8%, way out front of nominal GDP. Basel III, Tier 1 Capital, $181 billion, 11.9%. Firm SLR. I have no idea what that is, folks. It's a camera, 6.6%. And I love this one, Brad. HQLA of $539 billion. All of this is footnoted, and Joe Evangelista is saving my butt today. Is this a fortress, or is that just a marketing campaign? No, it's a fortress. Uh, you know, the, the JPM uh, and and you, you can you can say you know most of the banks at this point have fortress balance sheets, and you know we can the, the, with, with luck, 
if you take this forward, the risk of the bank drops and you end up seeing the betas going down. That hasn't happened, right? And because if you want the betas to go down, that's going to reduce the cost of capital. And these, you know, the somewhat anemic ROEs that you've seen from the banks may actually end up uh, if they stay flat, right. if you know, you'll you'll be beating your cost of capital. We're not there yet. There's still a lot of uncertainty on the banking side, but the credit risks of the banks has has gone down. Right, okay. they're they're sitting there with a lot of liquidity <clears throat> on their balance sheet. They're sitting yeah. there with great capital positions. You know that that means that all of us can sleep well at night. That right. the bank system's stable. Now, whether you want to invest in them, that's a different question. And Brad Hintz uh, with us. Let's finish up here in J.P. Morgan and get Professor Hintz on with his day. Brad, uh, tell me about retail banking. Mr. Diamond's killing it clearly within retail banking, and there's others doing it well, and some better, some worse. I, I David and I walk by. David in Brooklyn. I'm in New York in, excuse me, in Manhattan. Yeah. And uh, did I say that? <laughs> and in Manhattan, when did the branches start closing down? <laughs> um, you've got uh, you've got some some uh, generational issues there, Tom. Right? Which is uh, you know I don't believe my 26 year old son uh, has ever visited a branch. He does everything electronically off of his cell phone. On the other hand, you know, yeah, I go over to my my little branch in New Vernon, New Jersey. And uh, I know the people over there. So, you know, there's a, who, it, it, the, the branch system has to be resized. Uh, JPM certainly is the dominant player in, uh, in New York City. Um, but, you know, you, yeah. you, you don't look only right. at the 20-year-olds, right? And you recognize that the, elder, the elderly have all the wealth management. So keeping a few of those branches right. is probably a good idea. Is the, is the Boston merger-thon is just one example. The merger-thon of 20 or 30 years ago, did that work out? What, for the, for the banks uh, as, they, the, as they rolled themselves yeah, up? I the, mean, the, the you know, Tom, you remember names like NCNB, right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Brad, I remember the second national bank of the United States. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, so, it worked. Um, not as well as uh, as people have uh, had had hoped, but they did work for some, and you know, and we do know that there's scale economics that exist in, in in commercial banking. We still, as the United States, we still have a very very fragmented banking system. Um, unfortunately, the large banks can't get larger, right? That's you know the too large to fail problem, and so we're going to see a roll up of this. It's not going to happen right away, but it is. We're not seeing new banks being made, right? So the you know the looking forward you know if you look if you give a five year time horizon you'd say you know that the banking world will consider to consolidate but it's going to consolidate below the large ones right it'll consolidate at that next tier. Total credit card loans, J.P. Morgan, hundred and thirty three billion dollars. A few weeks back, our colleague Sam Grobart wrote a piece for Bloomberg Business Week about the Chase Sapphire Reserve card demand incredibly high for this card time that has a special plunk factor. They actually put metal in the middle of it to give it a special feel to it. It's a wildly popular card. There is this competition, Brad, between City and J.P. Morgan when it comes to credit cards, in the credit card space. How important is that to this bank going forward? Um, very important to City. Remember, uh, you know, City just did the Costco deal, right. and that's, that, that's very, very good for them. Uh, credit cards are important for all of these <laughs> banks. It's a major source of profitability. Tough business, right? And And 
but it's it 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 remains a, a one of the few areas where you can get very nice net interest margin off of a off of a portfolio. Um, it's it's a core business of marketing, uh, you know, and I think JPM we can you know we can we can say they've done a they've done a great job with the Sapphire card. City's going uh, you know somewhat different idea, which says we're gonna we're gonna tie in with a, with a Costco a retailer and pick up a portfolio yeah. that way. It's all scale. Yeah. Brad Hens, the scale for us is having you on. Thank you so much. Greatly Thank you very appreciate much. it. Neil Dudd asked me this morning, how do you do this? And then he said, why do you do this? This is why I do it. Daniel Jurgen walked in the studio this morning, and you'd think we'd speak with Dr. Jurgen about oil. One of his cottage industries is to be one of our great economic historians. The beginning of his classic, The Commanding Heights, on an England flat on its back is one of the great moments in modern economic literature, and we're thrilled that Dr. Jurgen joins us um, this morning. Martin Wolf writes it up, uh, Dan, in the FT today about this failure of May to be like Thatcher. You are truly one of the experts on this. Beveridge of the London School of Economics did a, a welfare study for England on want, disease, ignorance, squalor, and idleness. And out of that came the welfare state of England that Thatcher tore asunder. What is Prime Minister May trying to do now with the United Kingdom flat on its back? Of course, uh, Thatcher tried to open the economy, make it competitive, but the welfare state certainly uh, continues and uh, uh, continues to be a very big part of the economy, so it hasn't gone away. I think uh, Theresa May has a big problem, which is to define what is – Britain going to be now, now it's not going to be part of the EU. Is it going to be little England or is it going to be global England? And some of the, and she's responding to the same pressures that you see across uh, much of the uh, industrial world. Of course, here in the United States, there's a very vexing and challenging question of immigration and all the emotions around it. I would suggest that Baroness Thatcher with Keith Joseph had a more organized, cohesive domestic politics to apply and to do, and that's that's well, absolutely that's right. Absolutely, you know, that's absolutely right, Tom. Because they had had several years to think this through, to work it exactly. through. She's improvising. She's inherited this hand now, and basically mm-hmm. has uh, that the, the rules of the road just are not clear. So there's been no time right. to think it out. So as Martin Wolf points out, a lot of her rhetoric now is pulled from other places. Even he suggests mm-hmm. from Elizabeth Warren. Just because of time here, let's uh, David Gura have you switch over and talk about our American politics and the time that we've got with Dr. Jurgen. Yeah, I mean, it's been phenomenal to to watch the, the last week unfold, the reporting in the New York Times, the story after story seeming to roll out here about Donald Trump, this campaign going off the rails more perhaps than it, than it had been. You know, we were, we were speaking with Stan Collender yesterday about the prospects for congressional action for something happening in Washington next year. He is, let's say, pessimistic uh, on the subject. When do we return to a place where there is governance happening in Washington again, Dr. Jurgen? The question is, will we return to yeah. that? Well, <laughs> yes, I, exactly. I think that people point out that when uh, Hillary Clinton was a senator, she worked across the aisles and uh, uh, would be much 
you know, works with people. And, of course, right almost from the beginning, there was this gulf between uh, uh, the administration and, uh, and Congress. We saw it most – one example that we saw just very recently was on this uh, bill that uh, lifted uh, sovereign immunity uh, towards uh, Saudi Arabia and just a lack of communication. The day before the vote, the president sent a letter saying the results would be devastating for the United States, for our military – Personnel, our diplomatic personnel, but there was no uh, there was no traction uh, uh, until the very last moment. I'm glad that you brought that up. Maybe we can get into oil a little bit here, Tom. Uh, I, I I wonder what we've heard from the Saudis since that legislation was passed, since that uh, veto by President Obama was was overridden. Of course, there were the warning warning signs beforehand from the Saudis that if this were to happen, they would sell off treasuries and. And debt. What reaction have we seen? And and uh, moving to oil here a bit, you know, what does that what does that do to the region having this uh, this new law in place? Well, I think it, it raises questions of whether the U.S. government is going to get sued uh, from uh, by you know drone strikes, things like that. I mean, that's the big concern. And so you saw 28 senators after the legislation was passed saying, you know, maybe we've got to look at some uh, aspects of it. I think the this message from the Saudis was kind of shocked that it that it passed. Uh, they have a lot of other things on their agenda right now, particularly, I mean, this is a, a company country that just invested $3.5 billion in Uber. Uh, so uh, thinking through mm. that. Uh, and meanwhile, of course, they're moving ahead with this uh, huge uh, Vision 2030 to remake their economy well, and no longer be dependent on oil. Did you say. look at my script today? You say Vision 2030. Daniel Jurgen three years ago, Power in 2030, of course, off your wonderful book, The Quest. Where will this nation be in 2030? Our nation or Saudi nation? Our nation. Our nation. Um, that's what is that? That's 14 years away. <laughs> it's called three more painful presidential cycles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does raise the question of what are presidential elections going to be like in the future and uh, what mm-hmm. lessons are going to be taken away uh, from this campaign in terms of uh, organization. Uh, you know, this is what we're seeing now unfolding is hardly anything that would have been imagined uh, a year ago. And of course, when you travel in the rest of the world, people are kind of in shock watching this presidential yeah. election saying, what you're well, going to tell us about how to run a democracy. With, with your scope of economics and history, we had Michael Kazin on at Georgetown the other day on, on uh, William Jennings Bryan. Do you look at this as a one-off event or is there a permanence to what we've seen, the tumult that we've seen within the Republican Party? Well, I think that uh, that obviously they're very powerful forces that have come to the fore. And these issues, I mean, what was the issue that really galvanized is immigration, even though apparently right now there there is no net immigration coming from uh, Mexico. Uh, so I think these forces are there. And the thing is, we do need higher economic growth. We do need uh, inclusiveness yeah. and and more entrepreneurial energy in our no. society, not just in Silicon Valley. What a joyous surprise. Thank yes. you for stopping Thank you. by on a Friday. Daniel Jurgen, I can't say enough about his most recent effort, The Quest. Um, it is a synthesis of all that he's done and moves forward on this nation and our energy. Mr. Jurgen, we, we, we almost were oil-free there. Yes, I'm sorry. We'll do that next time. I brought it there. <laughs> put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves 
to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. We need to go to Boston. And Michael McKee at a very important summit at Tufts University. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Tom. And the good news for you is the Boston Bruins open the season with a 6-3 yes. win. Brad Marchand scores two goals, gets three assists to open the season. That's your report from Boston that I knew you wanted to have. Got that right. We're here with Admiral James Trevitas, our old friend, uh, the dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University, and they are hosting a conference today on the future of Greece. It's Greece's turn, and we welcome the Admiral to the program. We came up for the uh, for the conference because, of course, it's always great to talk to you about national security issues, and Greece has, it, it's been a financial crisis for the world, but you also look at it, and you've told us this before, that it is a major national security issue given its geographic location. Exactly. Uh, you know, we're talking sports a minute ago. Think about baseball. Think about the hot corner, the third base. Uh, Greece is kind of the hot corner for Europe. It's the closest to the batter in terms of offensive action. And so uh, Greece is going to be the canary in the, in the mine shaft in terms of refugees, terrorism. They're in a very precarious position, and we need to uh, stand with Greece, and that's part of what this conference is about. Mike. One of the questions that people have is... We went into the crisis in 2009, and in 2010 they started with rescue plans, and they're still not out of it, and things still seem to be deteriorating. Uh, I know you've been meeting for a day already on this. Have you, have you come to any conclusions as to why? Well, uh, it is a conference about Greece, so you'll allow me to reach into Greek mythology. Uh, one, it's like Sisyphus. You kind of roll the boulder up, you make progress, but it seems to kind of keep coming back down. And the other one, less well-known, is Tantalus, who was tied to a tree, punished by the gods, and dying of hunger and thirst, and the wind would blow apples almost within his reach, and the water would raise almost to his lips. So I think we've got a little bit of Sisyphus and a little bit of Tantalus going on. But I was in Greece a week ago, and I, I think we are beginning to turn the corner there. I think we are going to see uh, positive growth numbers there next year. Small, tiny, but positive. Well, one of the things people worry about with Greece's geographic location is obviously the introduction of bad guys into the region. In the early days of the crisis, there was a lot of talk about uh, bringing in loans from China, bringing in loans from Russia. Never happened. Uh, what's the Greek feeling about the United States and about these other actors? They've never been a particularly great friend of the United States, but they haven't allied themselves with the other side either. Yeah, I think if you look at the long relationship of Greece with the United States, it's uh, it's overall pretty positive. And, uh, I'll stipulate I'm a Greek-American, so I'm predisposed to think that way. But uh, remember, our values come from Greece. We have a long history of supporting them uh, in independence. We have a World War II history with Greece. And to answer the question of how it is today, I'd say it's a mixed picture. There are uh, a number of people in Greece who would like to see closer alignment with Russia, for example, Mike, because of the orthodox connections there. But I think uh, overall, Greece stands with the West, stands with NATO, and stands with the United States. Well, NATO is a big question, of course. You got Turkey right across the Bosporus there, which at one point was thought to be the next candidate to join the European Union, and now seems to be moving away. How do you assess what's going on with Turkey and the region? 
We have a uh, president in Turkey, uh, President Erdogan, who is consolidating power as a chief executive. This coup has actually helped him because it's given him the opportunity to purge numerous political and military opponents to his regime. Uh, he himself is drawing closer to Russia. So I think Turkey is going to be a problematic ally, but I'm, I'm confident over time we can keep Turkey in the transatlantic orbit. And you're right to say we've moved away from a, a, a spot in the European Union for Turkey. But I, I think over time you'll see them come back because the other options really aren't that good for them. The long term, they don't want to be aligned with Russia and its undoubtedly failing economy in the 21st century. But they've been making awfully nice with Vladimir Putin lately. They have, and that's uh, a function of... Uh, of Erdogan's desire to appear very strong internally, his displeasure with the United States over our support uh, for the Kurdish rebels and our reticence in returning this Gulenist cleric who has taken refuge here in the United States and Erdogan thinks he led the coup. Those are tactical challenges. I think long-term Turkey's strategic futures with Europe and with the United States, it'll play out that way may take us a few years to get there. Let me ask you, as long as you brought up the Kurds, uh, quickly, uh, we got about a minute left here. Um, Iraq, uh, where are we with that? There's talk of the U.S. arming the Kurds. That just brings in Turkey into it. Um, it seems like we're, we're not any closer to any kind of uh, solution there. It's a tough puzzle to put together. On Iraq, we're vastly better than we were a year and a half ago when the Islamic State was on the gates of Baghdad. Now they're pushed back. We're going to take Mosul back in the next six months. Uh, I think the long-term future for Iraq is a decentralized government. The Kurds are going to have to have a fair amount of authority. But I think Iraq holds together as a national entity. Beats go on this morning when it comes to banking. We had J.P. Morgan first, followed by Citi and then Wells. I'm going to bring in Eric Oja. He is U.S. Banks Analyst with CFRA joining us now. And Eric, I, I wonder if you could just draw a, a, a line of distinction for us here, how this, the third quarter, seems to be shaping up compared to the second. What's changed here uh, over the last quarter? Well, it's actually relatively similar to the second quarter. Recall that in the second quarter, expectations were extremely low because of the losses that were recorded in the first quarter. And most of the U.S. banks, certainly the largest ones, beat on top and bottom line. So what we're seeing this morning is the same thing. The uh, four major banks that reported this morning have all beaten on top line and bottom line expectations, which were relatively low going into this quarter. What are we seeing in terms of, of credit? I wonder when you look at these banks' credit portfolios, are there uh, points of any concern for you when you look at, say, commercial lending or you look at, at student loans? On the credit side of things, what are you uh, most focused on or most worried about? Well, in credit, we're most focused on, as is everybody, on consumer lending, particularly auto and credit cards. And there is some slight deterioration, but we see trends as relatively stable. Uh, one data point is that uh, J.P. Morgan Chase is building up its reserves for cards, but they say they're doing that because of growth, not deterioration. But our job as analysts is yeah. to uh, dig into that a little bit. So uh, credit quality peaked probably a couple of quarters ago. 
Eric, your job is to be stock picker of the year in 2009 for Standard & Poor's, which is a unique skill set, folks. Very different. There's a research of a company and their relative performance to a group. And then there's just the the, the cardinal thing of buy, hold, sell. How buy-e, hold-e, sell-e is the bank group right now? Do you have a real vision of where the bank group will be 12 months or 36 months out? Well, we have buy recommendations on all of the top U.S. banks. Uh, we think they're slightly undervalued on a P.E. basis um, uh, relative to uh, where they've been in the past. Uh, we think that they will continue to improve. Um, loan growth is relatively strong. Uh, the returns of capital are improving. Uh, as long as the U.S. economy slowly grows, uh, yeah. we think that they can take global market share. Let me ask you my money question, which is can you model the single digitness of their dividend growth? Mm-hmm. Are they going to be subpar, midpar, or are they really going to you know, add a dividend growth above revenue growth, above nominal GDP? I think that their dividends will uh, start to accelerate in growth. And one of the reasons is that the original 30% uh, cap that the Federal Reserve had, I know its banks were really uh, not supposed to pay out more than 30% of normalized EPS, and it looks like that cap is starting to be relaxed. So perhaps they can go up to the 40% range. So that should certainly help with dividend growth going forward. And, and yes, we see dividends growing uh, faster than GDP. We had this fixed income trading slump, went on for a while. Now it seems that we've come out of that, come out of that uh, <laughs> loudly, it seems like, when you look yeah. at J.P. Morgan, uh, especially here. Do you think that's going to continue for some time? No. I think um, from what I heard on the JPM conference call that is underway right now is that Q4 uh, will moderate. So uh, Q2 and Q2, Q2 and Q3 were large uh, outperformances in terms of trading. Uh, some of that was due to the Brexit volatility, and some of it was due just to what the results were a year ago as a comparison. Uh, comparisons are easing, um, but the results in trading were far better than expected. Do you have a single Best Buy right now? Uh, we have a strong buy recommendation on the shares of Citigroup, and that's based on, yeah. Do they uh, just that, close the ROE gap? Is that what that's about? Yeah. I mean, their, their ROE is so far below peers. It's around 6%, yeah. while JPM is, is 10%, while Fargo is 12%. So we think they're closing the gap, and that... Um, it just takes many, many years to keep building the ROE. But as mm-hmm. the legacy city holdings assets wind down, we think the ROE growth will accelerate. Uh, David Gura, we need to bring the show to a screeching halt. 9.03 and 28 seconds this morning, a missile from the Secretary of Treasury to one D. Gura, U.S. Treasury Department, Office of Public Affairs, immediate release. Do I understand that they've lifted the ban on Cuban cigars? The ban on importation of Cuban origin merchandise as accompanied baggage for personal 
use. Not Persons. only will you be able to smoke Cuban cigars, but you can dip them in your Cuban rum before you smoke There them. you go. They have lifted the value limitation on alcohol and tobacco products. Persons subject to U.S. jurisdiction will be further authorized to import Cuban origin merchandise acquired in third countries into the U.S. as accompanied baggage. So yes, Tom, your read is so correct. Cigars in, and rum. The individual can bring them back. Or can we send the surveillance golf stream down there and fell out to sea? Hold it up. <laughs> I, you know, the runway you, folks, at Havana I, Airport. I remember yes. Bay of Pigs vaguely. I remember the silence in the house. I don't remember the details, but it's it's amazing to see this. This is from the Secretary of Treasury, Jacob J. Lou. The Treasury Department has worked to break down economic barriers in areas such as travel, trade, and commerce. He goes on to say, and we hope there'll be an American bank on every quarter. <laughs> Eric Oha with us, with the CFRA on banking. Eric, what does the opening of Cuba mean for our American international and, frankly, Florida regional banks? Have you thought about that? Yeah, I think uh, that would probably be a relatively uh, small benefit. Uh, but symbolic. Yeah, may, perhaps symbolic, but um, yeah. uh, it, it's a small country, and uh, may, maybe for yeah, like you said, for uh, regional banks that are yeah. in the Florida you mean, area. We're, we're a small country. Cuba's a small country. <laughs> Eric, there are five banks on every corner in New York yes. City. When does the silliness end? Well, we have seen some rationalization taking place. Um, one of the most aggressive ones is J.P. Morgan Chase. They are closing a lot of the legacy uh, branches that they have. I mean, keep in mind that they're a combination of uh, Chase Manhattan, uh, Manufacturers Hanover, Chemical, Bank One. So they can close a lot of legacy uh, branches. And I think that uh, we're also seeing that from Toronto Dominion. Uh, they are closing a lot of the old Commerce Bank branches. So, um, no, I think, uh, and also with Fifth Third, uh, they announced the closure of 100 branches. So I think that we have seen the high water mark in U.S. bank branches. How about the transition to digital? I'm looking at the, the Wells report out this morning. Customer visits with branch bankers fell 10% in September compared with the previous month. Looking at the number of people who opened consumer checking accounts, that dropped 30%. Uh, and a note here in the Bloomberg News story, Wells did not give a cause for the declines. How are these big banks handling that transition to the digital space? Well, I think they're handling it extremely well. Uh, the larger banks have the resources uh, to build up their digital presence. Uh, PNC and TD have been leaders there. Yeah. I think also JPM. Um, and in, in, the, in the longer run, that's a lot less expensive than keeping open expensive branches and paying people. Um, they also have cut the number of people in each branch. Uh, less people are needed as technology improves. Do you perceive that a regional could do merger, merger, mergers and become a mega big bank? Like does PNC with operating income of five, maybe six billion, do they aspire to approach J.P. Morgan's $32 billion of operating income? I, I don't think uh, that they want to go up there, um, and that's simply because the liquidity and capital requirements will be so tremendous when they get up yeah. there. I, I mean, the fifth largest bank in the country is U.S. Bancorp. 
um, let's let's put it this way: uh, PNC has assets of 370 billion dollars, which is well below the big four, which are around two trillion. Um, and and that's simply a function of liquidity and yeah. uh, the the higher capital ratios that are demanded. Eric, thank you so much. Eric, oh, just brilliant today with CFRA. Uh, and uh, on, on the banking business, we'll have much more on this. Uh, Citigroup, you heard him say Citigroup was his best buy. I didn't know this, David Gurren, researching the, the important announcement from Treasury on trade with Cuba. President Kennedy's favorite cigar was the H. Upman. This according to The Observer. Uh, the night before he signed the embargo in 1962. Smoke them while you got them. Like he, yeah. he asked one P. Salinger to go out, uh, the acclaimed Pierce Salinger, to go out and buy every box in Washington. Pierce Salinger was the first one on the beach of the Bay of Pigs to get the cigars, get back before they started. And the brutal guy um, who's, who's, who's looking at the new Cuban cigars of 2016 says they are so mild that you want them to age 10 or 15 <laughs> years. <laughs> I don't know. You know, that it's a bit that's a big deal, folks. And what everybody can say, it's been a lifetime, David, of Cuba over there. See yeah, the, the, the the White House uh, issuing a statement on this as well. President Obama, who was in Havana recently, saying these changes represented the progress I saw firsthand when I visited Havana to personally extend a hand of friendship to the Cuban people. That quick flight over 90 miles of blue water belied the real barriers of the past that were crossed that yeah. day. So, yeah, some some real movement here. It, it's, it's just to cigars and, and It's like on a formal report yeah. and, and, and I can't concentrate. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.